Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, more pushback following the governor's decision to end federally funded housing assistance. Then, NPR's education correspondent joins us to see how the first week of school is going in the capital city. Plus, a response from the president of the Till Institute following the latest in the search for justice for Emmett Till. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Monday will be the last day Mississippians can apply for federally funded rental assistance. Last week, Governor Tate Reeves instructed the Mississippi Home Corps to close applications on August 15th and return an estimated $130 million back to the federal government. Reeves claims the move will get people back to work. But some policymakers and advocacy groups are pushing back against that message. Members of the Poor People's Campaign rallied outside the governor's mansion yesterday, calling on Reeves to rescind his order. Representative Sheck Taylor, a Democrat from Starkville, was among them. He spoke with our Kobe Vance. I can't figure out uh, in what world where you have the poorest state uh, in, in all the union where where it's comfortable to send back money to the feds that obviously sent the money because of a need. I think the, I think the misconception is, is that, uh, that that will stimulate, ending the program will stimulate the economy. Uh, the folks who are receiving ramp funds, these are not shiftless, lazy individuals. These people are fam- uh, have families. They're already working because they're already are renters, and they need this money. Uh, we pass out a huge uh, tax benefit to some of the wealthiest uh, Mississippians immediately, where a lot of other folks got to wait up to 12 years to get relief, folks who are like myself. And, and this, is, this is the question I always ask people. If you have to wonder if you're rich or poor, if you're not identifying as rich, you're probably poor in the state of Mississippi. So these programs benefit us all. I wanted to get your thoughts on the governor sending this funding back as opposed to the legislature. You know, and the legislature set this program up. Do you think the governor is going around the legislature to do this? Well, it's, you know, um, it's a very peculiar situation. Uh, and, and, of course, the governor's uh, exercised his authority to do so. I think, I think that it could be better spent in, in, in undergirding uh, more Mississippians and keeping this program until the money goes away. 
you know like I do that whenever you send money back to the uh, to the feds, when a uh, pandemic comes again, they're going to take that into consideration about the needs of the state. Residents like Sandy Tullis fit that mold. Tullis was a RAMP recipient and says the program provided meaningful assistance. I was homeless and um, I'm on the street, uh, living in a homeless shelter. Uh, If they do away with this program, so many more people are going to be homeless like like me. Um, Being able to, to... use ramp and utilize them to put a roof over my head and to be able to to obtain the goals that I'm trying to obtain, which is going to school, maintaining a full-time job, trying to just make it and live. Um, with the ramp program, that has, they will give us the help to do so. Um, if they cut this ramp program out, there are going to be more and more people that are homeless that's going to add to the homelessness on the streets of Mississippi. What do you think this could mean for people like yourself that have been struggling to secure housing over the past few years? I feel like they're going to find themselves on the streets, and the governor just doesn't care. And it's it's a shame. It's it's sad. Like I, I get very emotional about the whole situation because I have been on the streets, and it has been really hard. But. There are people out there that are fighting daily to have jobs, to go to school, to change their life, and to to grow, you know, and to be a better Mississippian. They're not just sitting on their butts not working, because I work hard. Just because people are homeless doesn't mean that they have drug addictions or mental illness or, or they're not wanting to work. Be there for everyone. That is what we're supposed to be. Be a proud Mississippian. Stand up for your fellow Mississippians and help get homelessness off the streets of Mississippi. Applications for the RAMP program remain open until Monday. Eligible residents and those already in the program will continue to receive assistance for up to 15 months. Coming up, a look at Jackson Public Schools and the first day of class. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. In parts of the U.S., especially across the South, children have begun returning to classrooms for the new school year. On Monday, students at North Jackson Elementary School got a special visitor on their first day. From Jackson Public School Superintendent, Dr. Eric Green. Good morning. Are these these second graders? Is this second grade? NPR education correspondent Corey Turner was with him and is in Jackson this week reporting on how school leaders, teachers, and families are feeling about this new school year. Corey joins me now. 
Hey, Desiree. Corey, you cover education nationally. Why did you choose to come to Jackson? Well, really for two reasons. One, because I've spoken with a lot of school leaders over the past two years during the pandemic about how it was affecting their schools and students. And I had a couple really good conversations with Superintendent Green. Uh, The other reason is because I think Jackson Public Schools really capture not only the challenges that many schools continue to face from the pandemic, but also some of the solutions they're turning to. So it, it seemed like a good place to ground my national reporting. Well, let's start with something that's become a source of controversy in so many districts, masking. What's happening this year in Jackson schools with that? Yeah, so Important context, last year, all the way up to graduation, Jackson Public Schools was unusual insofar as it required students to mask all the way to the end. According to federal data, at the end of the last school year in June, only about 15 percent of public schools still required staff and students to wear masks inside. This year, though, starting this week, we know Jackson, like many of those districts, has dropped its mandate. Um, Dr. Green told me the district is still encouraging kids to wear masks, but families can choose. So we visited Callaway High School earlier this week, and there I spoke with one parent. Her name is Latrenda Owens, and she said her son, who's a freshman there, would be wearing a mask. Um, She lost a cousin to COVID, she told me, and said she was frustrated with some of the politicians out there who have been discouraging mask use. I wasn't so big on them telling them not to wear masks because COVID is still here. I mean, I know some have their feelings about it, but my thing is vaccinated or not, it's still here. So why not still have them wear masks? Why not still have them protect themselves? One last note, Desiree, um, on voluntary masking. You know, what I saw visiting half a dozen schools is that age seems to matter a lot. At the elementary school I visited, I saw nearly all of the kids wearing masks, especially the really young kids. But I also visited a couple middle schools and high school along with my producer, Jeff Pierre. And I would say that the older the students got, the less likely they were to be wearing masks. Hmm, Interesting. You've reported nationally about schools racing to help students make up for some of the learning they may have missed when school was online. What have you seen in Jackson? Yeah, a few really interesting things. Uh, We visited Kirksey Middle School the other day with Superintendent Green, and they're doing something that I've seen in lots of districts across the country. They're they're carving out a chunk of dedicated time across the week for what are called in-house interventions. So if a student needs extra help in math or reading, that's when they can get it. And they can get it regularly across the week. At the elementary level, they also have interventionists and other teachers working with kids one-on-one or in small groups during class time. They can either push in or pull out. And there's reason for optimism. We sat down earlier this week with Superintendent Green, and we went over the district's testing data, including recent unofficial results, they haven't been released yet, from tests that students took last spring. And Superintendent Green was really hopeful. So the performance that we saw in spring of 2022 shows that we've rebounded from where we were in 2019. um, And we know that we'll continue to see that level of rebounding and improvement as we continue through the year. Basically, Desiree, the data show that roughly one in four Jackson students was proficient or better in math and ELA back in 2019, so before the pandemic. After a year of online learning, the data show those proficiency rates 
bottomed out, especially in math. But these new unofficial data from last spring suggest that the district is back where it was in 2019. So that's good progress. Superintendent Green told me, look, he knows those proficiency rates are still low. They're too low. They are not good news in and of themselves. But this rebound is good news. And it starts this school year off on a hopeful note. Well, you know, we've heard a lot of reporting nationally about the billions in federal dollars that have been flowing to schools to help with their pandemic costs. Can you give us a sense of what that money's buying in Jackson? Yeah. So in addition to helping pay for some of this extra academic help we've been talking about, um, Jackson is doing something that I know many historically underfunded school districts are doing, especially big city districts. Uh, They're upgrading facilities that honestly probably should have been upgraded years ago. There just wasn't the money to do it. Um, Keep in mind, you know, the federal dollars that have been flowing to districts over the course of the pandemic are really unprecedented. So districts have the opportunity to do something that they simply couldn't have done before. So here in Jackson, air conditioning is a big deal. Obviously, I don't need to tell your listeners, um, not only is it important for air filtration with COVID, it's Mississippi. It's hot, and you can't learn when it's hot. Um, Superintendent Green told me six of the district's seven high schools need new HVAC systems. Uh, And that doesn't include the middle and elementary schools that also need new systems. So um, they're going to be investing in new HVAC. Um, Green estimated that he's going to have to use about $60 million of those federal funds for facilities upgrades, which obviously includes HVAC. Uh, And that's a little less than a third of what they got. So, you know, a sizable chunk on facilities and air quality and and those issues. Uh, Again, thankful that we've got it. Unfortunate that we've got to spend it on that. And you can hear in his voice, Desiree, that Superintendent Green has, has mixed feelings here because he's thrilled to be able to make these upgrades, but he also knows that other better resourced districts in the state, across the country, aren't having to spend this really important money on facilities. They can focus their spending on curriculum and helping children directly. While we're talking about school buildings, Jackson is going through a water crisis. How is that affecting schools? Yeah, that's a, that is a real wild card that as a national reporter, I didn't even anticipate until I got here. Um, it is a big deal. Uh, it is in part out of the school district's hands, at least the fix is, but it is definitely complicating things for the district. I know that at least five schools are experiencing really low water pressure, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, kids can't use the water fountains. So I've been told by the district that all schools started this week with 20 cases of bottled water, but that doesn't fix the toilet problem. You can't flush toilets if you have low water pressure. And it's hard to know what the district... Uh, can do about it until the city figures out what it's going to do about it. So right now, I know the district is just trying as best it can to keep schools open. Although I will say, if there is a silver lining here, and I don't, I don't want to be overly rosy, uh, but if ever the district was prepared to have to go back online because it can't keep physical school buildings open, Now's probably the best time because students and teachers both have experience with online learning. It's not great, but if this were happening three, four, five years ago, it could be a lot worse. 
Corey Turner is NPR's education correspondent. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's time for the Mississippi Book Festival on Saturday, August 20th. Visit the State Capitol in Jackson from 9 to 5 p.m. and visit inside the Rotunda on the first floor. The MPB Kids Club will be ready with Ed Said, PBS's Molly from Denali, plus activities and giveaways. Join Mississippi Public Broadcasting for adventure in both body and brain at the Mississippi Book Festival on Saturday, August 20th. More info at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Carolyn Bryant Dunham, the white woman whose accusation set off the lynching of black teenager Emmett Till nearly 70 years ago now, will not face charges. This week, a grand jury declined to indict the 87-year-old for kidnapping and manslaughter, despite a recently discovered unserved 1955 warrant for her arrest. This most likely closes the investigation of a murder that shocked the nation and galvanized the civil rights movement. But for Christopher Benson, the story isn't over. The president of the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley Institute speaks with our Michael Guidry. The question that always has, has, uh, has, has teased us is what justice requires. I mean, justice it literally would have meant that Emmett Till would have come home intact and alive. Uh, so in a way, we can never see justice in this case, because how can you how can you make up for this horrible crime that's been committed? We did want to see accountability. We thought we had seen enough to uh, to conclude reasonably that Carolyn uh, Bryant Donham uh, was guilty of something. Uh, but our belief in that uh, does not equate to proof. And I worked with uh, Reverend Parker and the FBI, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney in the Northern District of uh, Mississippi, and the District Attorney uh, in uh, LaFleur County uh, over the course of the last four years. We looked at everything. We saw everything that they saw. They wanted us included because Reverend Parker was the, the, the only remaining eyewitness to the horrible uh, kidnapping in uh, 1955. Uh, he's a survivor of that night of terror and, in, in, in that way, a victim. So he had a lot to say about uh, reviewing the, the evidence that was gathered. And as we progressed, we saw, as I mentioned, circumstances that would have led a reasonable person to believe certain things. But again, that belief did not amount to the level of proof that a grand jury would require. So, yeah, we're disappointed. We're disappointed because Carolyn Bryant Donham has never been brought to account for her responsibility. Uh, And we think that would have been an important message to send to the country at this critical time, that it doesn't matter how long you live. It doesn't matter what condition you're in toward the end of your life, that if you've ever participated at any level in a horrible hate crime, that you will be brought to answer for that. The methods of law enforcement uh, and those in authority then versus no matter how disappointing it was, how this latest, I guess, round of things went with the grand jury. Is there anything in in the difference there that leads the Institute, the family to believe that at least 
the way justice is carried out, the way accountability is carried out, has come somewhere uh, in these 67 years? Well, that's a great question. What we saw during the course of our four-year ride-along, if you will, with the FBI, right, and looking at how uh, information was gathered, how diligent uh, people were with respect to collecting and assessing the information, how dedicated uh, the officials were to finding answers, we were quite impressed. Uh, We had to contrast what we saw, what we experienced firsthand with what we have learned about what happened and what didn't happen back in 1955. Recently, a warrant for the arrest of Carolyn Bryant was uh, was uh, discovered. Uh, we see that as a great historical event, but it doesn't amount to evidence. In order for a warrant to issue, you have to have probable cause. And there's no record of what that probable cause was at the time. So while the arrest warrant could have been used to bring Carolyn Bryant Donham in, the question is, now what? What will you charge her with? because there was no other evidence that could be considered. So, you know, there is an emotional response to this, and, and you say, okay, now we have a warrant, let's arrest her, let's indict her, let's, let's try her. Yeah, everybody wants that, because everybody knows what they believe about the story. And certainly we have that emotional connection as well. But then you look at the pieces of this, this puzzle, and you realize that, that so many pieces are missing. So that connects us to 1955. You know, what was not done? back in 1955. Well, first of all, Carolyn Bryant was not served with that warrant. She could have been, but the sheriff decided that he didn't want to bother her because she was the mother of two small children. The problem now is that that warrant for kidnapping may still exist, but the underlying cause doesn't. Another part of it uh, was to try to establish something from her memoir that recently was leaked to the public. Uh, to show that she had some involvement in in an element of manslaughter. And the problem with that is that the memoir doesn't really provide any evidence of that. So we see all the complexities of this largely because we were there. We had a front row seat in this investigation. Uh, The contrast between what is done now, which was most impressive, and what was not done back in 1955 when clearly uh, the officials in Mississippi wanted to cover this up, um, it's, it's quite striking. A lot of people have been highly critical of the current uh, district attorney uh, in the, uh, the Fourth uh, Circuit. Um, and frankly, I see that as unfair because having worked with him or having seen him work, I know how dedicated he was to finding a just um, outcome in this case. But in so many ways, his hands were tied by the lack of evidence that was brought forward. And the reason there was a lack of evidence was because of, frankly, the white supremacists of 1955 who lived and profited up and down the power structure in Mississippi at the time. So we have to ask ourselves, whose fault is this really? And uh, I will leave asking this, the mission of the Institute, uh, and that is that is continuing the story and that legacy of Mamie Till Mobley uh, and Emmett Till. So where are we um, in telling that story? I know you and the Reverend Wheeler Parker have uh, a book, A Few Days Full of Trouble, coming up. Where are we in telling that story and paving that legacy? Well, the case 
has been closed, this story will continue. Um, we are publishing a book uh, that uh, goes through the details of the four years of the investigation we were involved in, uh, using that book as a point of departure to talk about the core story and also the enduring uh, traumatic uh, effect of that on the family. Um, so there's that part of it. We want to educate the public with respect to what happened in this case because the truth really has not come out and we want to correct that part of it. It's very important to Reverend Wheeler Parker that that truth come out. At the same time, we want to show how one person can make a difference with respect to progress in this country. And if everybody sees a responsibility, then just imagine you know, the impact that we can have. So Reverend Parker feels very strongly about carrying on the legacy of the late Mamie Till Mobley in that regard inspiring young people to know that they have a purpose in this life and they have a certain level of power in a democratic system to uh, to serve that purpose and to make a difference. So we're going to continue to work with young people. Uh, if, if anything ever surfaces that could serve as evidence, uh, we certainly will pursue that vigorously. But in the meantime, we want to elevate people's consciousness to show them that they have a responsibility in the society to step up and to encourage them to do so. Well, Christopher Benson with the Emmett Till and Maybe Till Mobley Institute, thank you so much for uh, reflecting on the events of this week and your perspective on the, the legacy of Emmett Till and Maybe Till Mobley. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.